Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On this podcast, we're going to be talking with Professor Adam Finn, Professor of Paediatrics, University of Bristol, about COVID-19 and children. Are children susceptible to COVID-19? How were they affected in the pandemic? And what should we do about vaccines? On the podcast today, I'm speaking with Professor Adam Finn, Professor of Paediatrics at the University of Bristol and head of the Bristol Children's Vaccine Centre. Madam's a paediatrician specialising in infectious diseases and has been a vaccine trialist for, I think, about 25 years with a fascination for the immune responses in the nose and throat and how they protect us. Adam, welcome to this podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's nice to be here with you. The pandemic arrived here in the UK around February of 2020, and we saw a huge surge in cases that occurred over the next couple of months. I guess my first question for you as a, as a paediatrician, what was our experience in our hospitals in the UK when that happened? Well, it was almost before the experience happened that the alarm began, of course, because we knew very little, if anything at all, about this infection. But what we did know was that there were many other viral infections that uh, really seriously affect children, particularly very young children. And so we were extremely worried that that would be the case here and that we would see a big burden of infectious disease in our, in our children, which of course is the perhaps the thing that worries us the most, not only as paediatricians, but as parents and members of society. So there was a great deal of alarm. And uh, in fact, a lot of planning was done uh, for the possibility of a deluge of severe cases. Now, happily, that didn't uh, didn't materialize. And it, over the first months of the pandemic, uh, ironically, we had um, a lot of resource put in place for uh, this putative uh, large number of severe cases, and they just didn't arrive. Uh, so uh, it's one of the few happy things about this particular pandemic is that it has turned out not to be a serious problem, at least in the large majority of children. But we didn't know that at the start. You say that we didn't know that at the start, but is that because we weren't getting the information from China and then subsequently from Italy? Or was it more that just that at the beginning there was so little information about anything that was happening? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the information we were getting was was fairly fragmentary. Uh, uh, the, the one good thing that you'll be well aware of that came out of China was the sequence of the virus that came very early and that enabled us to get uh, a rapid start on vaccine development, but the clinical information was very limited. I think it was clear even in the end of February, beginning of March 2020, that this was predominantly affecting old people. So I think that was uh, that was evident from the outset and made people think that it was going to be very like flu. But of course, flu also affects young children. I mean, we may see most of the deaths from flu in the elderly, but um, we, we do see a lot of influenza in children, and some of them do get quite ill. So uh, it was a natural uh, assumption, really, that this could be a problem in children that we just hadn't yet heard about it. What sort of things were done in the hospital in Bristol to try to prepare for what could have been a deluge of severely ill children? Yeah, so uh, I, what happened was that we, we very much uh, sort of cleared the decks, if you like. We stopped uh, doing a lot of routine work. We added extra staff on the front door ready for the possibility of a very large number of cases arriving. 
Uh, of course, there was a lot of concern at that point about uh, infection control and the risks that staff might face uh, confronted with infected patients. Uh, so a lot of work was done on that to try and protect staff and keep them safe, because again, we, we really didn't know if actually, if anything, what we were hearing from China was very alarming stories about healthcare workers getting seriously ill and dying of the infection. So there was a lot of concern around that. Uh, and then the other thing that happened was that, that people stopped turning up. Uh, so the normal work that we would normally do disappeared. And I think that was a combination of things. Um, uh, initially, at least, it was people were fearful of coming to hospital. They feared that that would expose them to the infection. And I think they also felt that they didn't want to be in the way. And so things that they would perhaps normally have showed up with, they they kind of managed at home and, and they were trying to avoid overwhelming the system. So I think there was a combination of things uh, that led to that. And of course, that first wave then was a huge surge with intensive care units and adult wards full of very sick patients. And I don't know whether your experience in Bristol, but here in Oxford, a lot of the junior paediatric doctors were then redeployed to adult services because there was such a shortage of staff to try and support large numbers of patients coming in. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I mean, we we have the Bristol Royal Infirmary right next door to the Children's Hospital in Bristol. And indeed, there was a certain traffic of staff down the road because there was a very different story next door. I mean, they, they really were experiencing a, a big surge of cases and, and were, were being very, very stretched. So that was a big contrast to the pediatric side. And the other thing that we did uh, to some extent was to start admitting sort of younger adults who were a bit closer to the pediatric age range into our intensive care beds when they just didn't have enough to uh, to support the sick patients next door. So there was that movement as well. So I guess strangely for paediatricians, this was uh, generally speaking quite a quiet period rather than one busy, which is of course all of our adult colleagues face this huge pressure of work whilst paediatricians were perhaps a little bit more spare time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I also had some direct contact with what was going on, for example, in Portugal where my wife lives and she runs the emergency service in a large tertiary pediatric hospital. They built a sort of enormous tent outside uh, to expand their capacity. They doubled up on staff. And then through the, the, the first wave and into the summer when things quietened down, they all sat around with nothing much to do. So it was a very uh, weird time in many ways. Um, and of course, we've subsequently had the kind of uh, backlash from all of that, all of that illness that didn't happen during those first weeks and months when children were not only um, not getting sick from COVID, but being isolated from one another and not transmitting infections around in the normal way that they do, uh, you know, that all came back to bite us later because they hadn't experienced those infections. Um, and sure enough, uh, once things began to normalize, they, those infections came back uh, uh, in very large numbers. So just at the time when all of that extra resource that had been provided was being removed, suddenly the workload doubled and was much higher than it normally is. I guess that lockdowns, which were pretty universal around, certainly in high-income countries around the world, stopped transmission. Children weren't going to school, so they couldn't meet each other and spread germs between themselves. And those germs are still around. And so for the vast majority of them, if they were going to get those infections, they then got them after the pandemic and people were back mixing again. Exactly right. So we've seen these resurgences of infections. We've actually learned quite a lot from that in terms of understanding the way that these infections affect each other 
an interact because we don't normally have this uh, this kind of pattern of uh, infections disappearing and coming back again. Uh, but we are even now experiencing large numbers of cases of infections, much larger numbers in some areas of infectious diseases than we would normally expect to see. But of course, these are not COVID. That still has stayed away just as it did in those first waves. Well, yes. I mean, children <clears throat> like adults are getting COVID uh, uh, and we're continuing to see waves, but they're not getting sick um, because it, happily, it's a very mild infectious disease for children uh, for reasons that we're still in the process of trying to figure out. But uh, with the exception of a small minority of children who have underlying health conditions that make them vulnerable to this virus, uh, happily in children, uh, you know, normal healthy children, it really doesn't bring them into hospital hardly ever at all. If we go back and we look at the first two waves, the first one really in the spring and early summer of 2020, and then the second wave starting towards the end of 2020, which children were being admitted to hospital? Because it's not true to say there were none. So who was being admitted to hospital in that period? Yeah, uh, well, I, I think the, the real uh, concern arose probably two two or possibly three months into the first wave when we began to see children coming in with really very, very seriously ill with uh, a syndrome that's a bit like another inflammatory syndrome we see in children called Kawasaki's disease. Um, so this got named uh, variously PIMS TS in the, uh, in the side of the Atlantic. The Americans, of course, had their own name for it. And uh, th these children were experiencing not COVID infection and the, the pneumonitis that we see in adults, particularly elderly adults, but actually some, usually some weeks after they'd had a mild COVID infection, were becoming in, uh, coming sick with an inflammatory syndrome, a sort of immune-mediated syndrome that was making them ill with fevers um, and uh, a, a whole constellation of other features that, uh, that were really quite concerning. Now, there were never very large numbers of these children, but they did nevertheless come in in sufficient numbers that we were concerned that this could turn into something really major. And of course, we also had to scramble to try and work out how best to manage them and how best to uh, see them through these illnesses and, and, and hopefully to a full recovery. So that, those, that was the main immediate anxiety. There were, of course, also children that came in with COVID, that came in with, uh, with difficulty breathing and inflamed lungs. Uh, these were very small in number, but particularly children with severe neurodisabilities uh, seem to be prone to to a more serious version of the disease. And and you know we saw some children who uh, had other conditions like Down syndrome who were getting sick in small numbers. So it wasn't an invisible problem, but it was much less of a problem in terms of numbers of cases than we had initially feared. And the cases, particularly the associated with neurodisability, tended to be a bit older, didn't they? They weren't the young children, they tended to be teenagers. Yes, and the inflammatory condition that I mentioned also were slightly older children than we normally see with this kind of uh, inflammatory condition as well. So uh, I, I think one of the sort of unifying rules about COVID seemed, that seems to run through all that we've learned about it is that this virus is a worse problem the older you get. Um, and the younger you are, the, the, the safer you are. We, we do see small numbers of very young children coming in with fevers, but even they don't seem to get very seriously ill. So the disease that was from COVID itself in that subgroup of individuals, particularly with neurodisability, looked pretty much like the adult disease. And then 
this inflammatory condition, which came on about a month later, as you said, incredibly rare still, seems like a completely new disease as well. It's one that we hadn't seen before, with many of those children certainly initially ending up in intensive care. So in paediatrics, we did get a new disease during the pandemic, one that we hadn't seen before. As you said, PIMS-TS or MIS-C is the name the World Health Organization and the Americans use. And this condition is quite puzzling. It's not exactly the same as Kawasaki disease. There seems to be more of a preponderance of people becoming critically ill and ending up in intensive care. What were the outcomes like from this condition? Well, initially alarming. You know, as you say, we were admitting children often in the second half of the first decade of life or in, in early teenage to intensive care. They were needing uh, multi-organ support uh, as well as anti-inflammatory treatments that we were trying out at the time. Um, but actually, the majority of them did get through and survived. There, there were deaths, but there were very few. Um, and <clears throat> what seems to have then happened is that we began to recognize quite a, a significantly larger number of more mildly affected children as time went by. <clears throat> this may have been partly because we simply weren't recognizing it before we really knew it was there. Uh, and also, I think uh, what we've recognized now is that the phenotype of this disease, the severity of it, has progressively got milder as the pandemic's progressed and different viruses have come through, probably at least in part because we've seen this massive growth in population immunity to the virus, both through the efforts of vaccination and the fact that the, the infection has now uh, reached just about everybody. So um, yes, initially really very sick children, uh, small numbers, lots of alarm, lots of communication around what on earth we should be doing, how to recognize them, how to treat them. And then the picture has calmed down a lot. And we're really, uh, if we see these cases at all these days, they very rarely get as far as intensive care. They come in, uh, they get managed uh, on the ward and they, they go home and they make, they seem to make a full recovery. Of course, now most children have been exposed to COVID-19 because it, particularly with the Omicron variants, it spreads so efficiently. Are we still seeing lots of these cases of the inflammatory condition, PIMS-TS, or, or indeed COVID itself causing problems in children? No, it, it seems uh, both in both uh, cases, it seems to have uh, declined to a point now where I think as, as sort of hospital paediatricians, we're not really seeing it. And given that out in the community, it's not now routine to test people who uh, get respiratory infections, at least of all children. Um, although there are almost certainly cases going on um, that they're for the most part not being recognized necessarily as being COVID. We've, I guess a year ago now in uh, early 2022, there was still a lot of testing. You know, you had to test to travel. Um, uh, we were mostly aware if we had COVID. I think now people are getting COVID and not really knowing whether it's COVID or not. So there are probably cases around, they're mild, they're not reaching hospital, um, and in children, uh, you know, nobody's really counting them. So I do want to talk about <laughs> vaccines next, but just before I do, I was just struck by comments from colleagues in the US who felt that they had seen many more cases of severe COVID than we've seen, and as you've described, the UK. In fact, the European picture is pretty similar with it not really being a paediatric disease <laughs> apart from this very rare inflammatory condition. But in the US, there were certainly stories of paediatric intensive care units full of children. I just wondered if you had any insight into that and why their experience appears to be different. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, Andy. I and mean, we've all spent a lot of time wondering about it. Uh, I, I'm not sure that one's really hearing much at the moment 
from the US suggesting that that's the case. But there certainly was a time when that was being suggested. Um, the only possible um, explanation that I heard uh, shared around is that, of course, obesity in childhood is a very much more significant problem in the US than here, although um, indeed we have a problem too uh, with obesity. But, but it is a very significant problem there, and it, it is associated with more severe cases. Both of the inflammatory syndrome, the PIMS-TS that we were discussing, and COVID itself. Uh, so that may perhaps have provided an explanation for that. Um, whether the dynamics of the spread of the infection or the particular strains of virus that were affecting those parts of the states that were describing those cases were different from what we had circulating in the UK, whether there was, um, yeah, differences related to um, uh, exposure or I, I, I don't know. I don't think we've ever really understood the disparity, but we are left, I think, even now with a very uh, distinct and different view broadly of pediatric uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection of COVID in children in North America to what we in Western Europe uh, are describing and seeing. I, I think that 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 difference of perception persists even now. Yes, I'm certainly not hearing from colleagues in the US of any problem today. But as you say, during the peaks of both the Alpha and the Delta wave, hearing of much larger numbers, and it's been seeing a much more significant paediatric problem. Although I did talk with intensivists on the East Coast at one point who said, well, yes, they're all morbidly obese of those who are in intensive care on that particular day. So that may be that that's the factor. And as with adults, it's age, obesity, diabetes, and so on, that certain factors that seem to be much more resulting in greater risk of disease before we have vaccines, of course. So now moving on to vaccines, really for most countries, vaccines were not entertained initially for children because the approach taken was to roll out vaccines with limited supply to those who had the greatest risk of poor outcomes and particularly older adults. But certainly in high income countries, the age groups vaccinated as supply increased went lower and lower until the consideration of children came about. And for us here in the UK, that would have been around a about the summer of 2021. And there was then a decision initially to vaccinate 12 to 15 year olds, and then later 5 to 11 year olds. I'm just interested in the policy context here, not the decision making, but what has to be weighed up in deciding whether to introduce vaccines. And of course, in the US, the recommendation goes down to six months of age now, which is lower than, than almost any other jurisdiction. So I just wonder what things are being weighed up to come to those conclusions. Yeah, this was a complicated and uh, constantly changing process. And anyone who imagines that the policy decision-making process was straightforward in this pandemic is, is, is not really fully aware of the complexity of what was going on. These vaccines were brand new. Uh, they were brand new platforms. They weren't just new vaccines. They were new kinds of vaccines that we'd never used before. And so we were looking and gathering information about their effectiveness, over time, uh, and also the safety as, as time went by. Um, so what has to be weighed up when you uh, decide to give a group of people, an age group of people or whoever in, in society a, a vaccine is the benefit and the risk. Uh, in normal times, you also have to consider the cost, of course, uh, in the context of the economic catastrophe that a pandemic poses, the cost becomes less of an immediate issue. I mean. It, no matter what the cost, you're going to want to try and uh, improve the situation. But you do need to weigh up the, the risks and benefits. And the problem is that with a new vaccine and a new disease, 
there's a much higher level of uncertainty around both of those uh, elements than you would normally have in normal time. So you'd have much more time to gather that evidence, consider it and make a, a carefully formulated decision. Uh, in a pandemic, you, you need to make decisions quickly. Um, now, that isn't difficult when you've got a disease that is killing large numbers of people in an age group, as, for example, the elderly with with uh, with COVID. You know, the, the risks that older people were facing from the disease were very, very substantial um, with with case fatality rates that were, you know, uh, you know, one in 100 or more and, and lots and lots of people. Uh, getting sick. As you come down through the age groups, at least with regards to people who don't have obesity and diabetes and other risk factors, that risk, uh, the risk of, uh, of serious infection or death or hospitalization progressively drops. Um, and once you get into the teenagers and the children that, you know, we've been discussing, there were a handful of children who were getting ill enough to be in hospital, but it really was a handful. Um, and at the same time, we were learning about these vaccines. We were learning uh, about rare but potentially quite significant side effects that occurred in a very small proportion of individuals given them, uh, and also recognizing that they cause sort of milder but common side effects that might be severe enough to make children miss a day or two of school. So you had to weigh up all of these numbers and be quite confident that you were actually going to do more good than harm by implementing the vaccine. Um, and we really owe that to, to everybody. You know, we, we really, uh, with a vaccine, it's primum non nursery, which is Latin for uh, first, do no harm. You're, you're giving a drug to people who are otherwise healthy against the possibility of getting sick. You clearly can't run the risk of making more of them sick than you're going to protect uh, against getting sick. Uh, so as we move down through the age groups, that became progressively more tricky, largely because there was uncertainty around both the, the level of rare side effects and, and the, the likelihood of rare serious disease. Um, and so we had to discuss and think more and more carefully as we got towards younger and younger children. I suppose the other thing to point out is that most countries had already decided to vaccinate individuals who are in those recognised high-risk groups of children. So by the time you come to a decision about universal vaccination, you're really not dealing with people at any substantially increased risk because those children were already identified. And so you're dealing with an extremely low-risk population. But interestingly, a lot of demand from parents and schools in most countries still to be vaccinated at that point because of the perceived risk that there was for those healthy children. And clearly, there are some healthy children who did succumb to COVID-19. It's not as if there's no benefit. It's just that that benefit at a population level is likely to be very low. And as you say, this becomes a very difficult decision. And when things are very much in the balance, people can have an opinion one way or another. Whereas with the elderly, it was, as you say, very clear. Older adults, there's a huge benefit. There's no balance of decision making to be made. So with that in mind, with the vaccination policy in those young age groups. What do you think the future holds for vaccination of children against COVID-19? I mean, we're now in a situation where the risk of severe COVID has essentially passed for most of the childhood population because even those who haven't been vaccinated have been infected. And we know that if you've been infected and survived, the next infection is going to be survivable. So what is the future for new cohorts of babies being born who won't have met COVID yet? Yeah, it's a really good question, Andy. And and of course, to some extent, we're going to have to wait and see. But the signs are that the viruses that are now circulating, you know, the initial 
uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that was circulating in 2020 is effectively extinct now around the world, and we have different uh, a number of different variants. But broadly speaking, these seem to be clinically milder. Some of that is because of the immunity that exists within the population, but probably some of it is the virus itself has adapted itself and changed and is, is less likely to make people seriously ill. And in that context, it's quite unlikely that we're going to start seeing uh, significant numbers of children getting this infection and getting seriously ill early in life before they, you know, when they first encounter it, assuming it continues to circulate. Um, but of course, we have to be open to the possibility of that changing. Um, we have to be ready to respond to the situation as it stands. So I think with the vaccines we have now, with the virus we have now, uh, we're in a kind of uh, wait and see situation. We're, we're certainly outside of North America. There's no great appetite for routine immunization of healthy children. Uh, there is continues to be recognition that children who can be identified who are at uh, significant risk of serious illness uh, should should benefit from uh, vaccine protection. Um, there are some quite interesting new uh, hypotheses emerging. For example, uh, there's fairly good uh, epidemiological evidence to suggest that there are more cases of diabetes, type 1 diabetes emerging or perhaps emerging more quickly in susceptible children um, as a consequence of COVID. And that might uh, you know, point to another risk group who might benefit from uh, immunization that needs to be looked into and established. So I think we may see these vaccines being used selectively on an evidence-driven basis in certain children. But at the moment, unless things change uh, radically for the worse, I would not anticipate, at least in the UK and other Western countries, or indeed in uh, you know around the world outside North America, which seems to be taking a slightly different approach, uh, that we'll see um, large numbers of healthy children receiving routine COVID immunisation. And of course, those of us who have lived through the pandemic, adults and children, have either been vaccinated or infected at this stage. And so it's extremely unlikely that we'll, in our lifetime, return to a pandemic of this virus. But of course, there are examples with influenza of particular strains ceasing circulation for many decades and then coming back and causing a problem in those age groups who hadn't met the virus before. So I guess that's what you're saying is that there's certainly the potential for future cohorts of children to be susceptible if the virus were to return and one might think differently about vaccination then. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't quite mean that, although that's certainly a possibility. I think what, as time goes by, the concerns that the virus will evolve, the current virus will evolve into a more virulent form while it continues to circulate around the world are subsiding. You know, I think we were all uh, anxious about that last year. We're a lot less anxious about that possibility now, but it it still exists. I mean, there is a theoretical possibility that the virus could be lurking away somewhere uh, in an animal or in a person uh, and is going to come back in a different form. But as time goes by and that doesn't happen, it becomes increasingly unlikely. So yes, I, I think we should not be causing anybody to be too alarmed about this prospect in the short term with this virus. Meantime, uh, as you imply, we should certainly continue to be alarmed about the possibility of another pandemic of another virus, whether it's a coronavirus, a flu virus or something else, because those, you know, that that continues to be a very real threat. We talked about the difficulties of making a decision about vaccination in the context of the summer of 2021, when already we'd had lots of circulation of the virus amongst children 
those who were in high-risk groups had already been vaccinated. And so the additional benefit of vaccine on top of that was likely to be small. But if you were looking at a different situation, such as a country with a zero COVID policy, like Australia, do things look different there where so far PIMS-TS hasn't happened, the, the inflammatory condition, there's been no COVID in children? Does the balance of benefit and risk look very different at that point once you do then have vaccine and think about vaccinating children? Well, I'm not sure it does with the present viruses now for children. Clearly, that was a real problem in certain places. We saw it in Hong Kong, um, and it was a certain, certainly a worry, for, I think, for the Australians and New Zealanders that that uh, the virus, when it eventually did get in and start spreading around because they couldn't do zero COVID forever, um, would be a problem. Now, in some of those countries, Australia and New Zealand, what they had done in the meantime was immunised their elderly population, their at-risk population. Uh, well, they haven't really done that very efficiently in China, particularly in Hong Kong. And therefore, they really experienced very, very bad outbreaks late on when the rest of us had got a lot more immunity and were in a much safer place. But I think that for children, the fact remains that even from the outset, this uh, coronavirus has never been a serious threat unless they have underlying health conditions. Uh, and, and so in the end, it was always going to be a mild, as it turns out, it was always going to be a mild problem for pediatrics. The harm that children have experienced as a result of this pandemic is very, very substantial. But it's not because of infection with the virus. It's because of the way that in the, the efforts we made to control the pandemic, we disrupted their lives, their education, their social exposure. And we're, we're now seeing the legacy of that. So children have unquestionably been enormously harmed but it wasn't by being infected with the virus. Professor Adam Finn, Professor of Paediatrics at Bristol University, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. My pleasure, Andy. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 